we interrupt our program to bring you this important message. So I'm 62 years old, retired from the NYPD, thought I was leaving that all behind, and lo and behold, Uvalde happens. Mm. And I'm talking to my friend who is a sheriff here locally where I live, and I'm like, what do I got to do to get back into school to be a school resource officer? So he explained to me, I have to go back through the academy again. And again, I'm 62 years old. Do I really want to go through an academy again because I know what it's going to entail and I know it's going to be very physically demanding. And um, I've always been a gym rat, stayed in the gym. Uh, it's not like I had to get back in shape. In fact, uh, the entrance test, I scored 276 out of a possible 300. So mm -hmm. I, I felt pretty good about that. But getting back to the academy, now I'm doing like CrossFit, which is something I don't do. I run, I lift weights, uh, you know, the typical, you know, things that you would do. Some, you know, obviously some cardio, but I don't do CrossFit swinging weights and, and doing uh, wind sprints and lunges and uh, all kinds of other. So it's completely foreign to me. But, you know, in the end, uh, you know, my goal is, like I said, you know, from the beginning is to be a school resource officer because it, at this stage of my life, what am I going to do? Am I going to sit around and watch my grass grow? My daughter's moved out. My son, he's uh, pursuing a career in law enforcement. He's moving out. And my wife's like, you need a job. You cannot just sit around here. <laughs> and, you know, I've had a pretty decent life in terms of excitement. You know, like yeah. with YPD, hmm. I, I got to live out my fantasies. I pretty much did just about everything with the exception of like hostage and negotiation in the NYPD. I did 13 years in plainclothes operations. I know I, I really wasn't fooling anybody. I didn't do any undercover work, but you know, I, <laughs> I did anti-crime. I did a robber unit. I did narcotics. Uh, you know, then they post nine 11, I did uh, intelligence work uh, and really kind of learned some amazing uh, skill sets from different people with different backgrounds and different walks of life. So um you know, I had, had it pretty good, had a pretty good career. And I, like I said, you, yeah. you know, I thought it was all done, but apparently it's yeah. not all done. I still have a, a few more years, hopefully, God bless, left to me. Yeah, it, it's like that thing. I, I always joke with people and say a lot of us are just born with this affliction. And it's this <laughs> inner drive that we want to be cops or, or crime fighters, really, is what I say. Because everybody can kind of be a parking lot, you know. <laughs> lizard where they just sit around and watch you know the, the grass grow in uniform or they're the there's a certain population that just we just want to go we want to get in the mix you know and get on those specialized units so it's interesting to to hear you when you're talking about being 62 going back through the training in the academy and, and in physically excelling compared to maybe some counterparts even across the country as people are getting into police work now a lot of them are battling, you know, sadly, like the, the physical fitness aspect, um, but also just that uh, ability and drive from inside. Like you can't help it like a lot of us, you know, and we're going to get into your career and you kind of mentioned it a little bit. But I want the listeners and the viewers to understand like the the picture that was up on, on YouTube. If you're watching, obviously you saw it. But for the listeners uh, is the, is the cover to of Brooklyn to Baghdad which is the guest, Chris Strom, who actually wrote this book. He's here, and we're going to get in depth with all of that, but also to understand 
most of the people that you're going to encounter out there who are in, in police work and really doing it for the right reasons, it's very hard to just step away at some point. And then to also understand, like Chris was saying, still in shape, an event, a tragedy happens. And then to understand I can still help in society. Like I can, if I'm the one there when, you know, heaven forbid a gunman comes on, comes on campus, it's, it's going to be handled, you know? So what I really want to get into first is I know some of your background, you kind of mentioned it. And for those who've read the book, y'all message me, we'll talk about it. But you'd started out early on uh, in the Marine Corps. And if you don't mind, kind of kind of kind of walk me through how that ended up happening. Like everybody's got their own backstory for why they, they joined the Marine Corps. Yeah, I mean, uh, thanks. Thanks very much for the intro and everything, uh, BC. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. I, I joined the Marine Corps. For, for two reasons. Uh, the one reason I ha had really like a, a troubled home. Uh, I just, you know, I, I'm not saying that for sympathy. I'm not looking for a shoulder to cry on, but you know, my parents were divorced. Uh, there was very little supervision and I, I was definitely, it was only a matter of time before I got into some real trouble. And I mean like legal trouble with the law. Uh, and I, there was this one particular shopping mall that I used to go to and they had a freestanding Marine Corps recruiting station, who knew, right by the bus stop, as you get off the bus, <laughs> yeah. had a captive audience. And um, I always liked the way they looked. I, I, there was always an allure about it. And I said, this is what I want to do. This is this is something I want to, you know, challenge myself mentally and physically. And uh, so that that's really how that came about. Uh, I think if I had a different set of circumstances or a different home life, um, I, I don't know that I would have chosen that, but certainly... Uh, those were the two, two biggest influences, the, the the broken home and just feeling like, you know, helpless in, in the situation. So I, I tell people about the Marine Corps, uh, especially people that are in military people in general. It's all the same. The brotherhood and the sisterhood, the fraternity of the Marine Corps, the Army or, or whatever is universal. Like you could be anywhere in the world uh, or in the United States and you have a conversation and it comes up. Oh, you served? Oh, I served too. And then it mm -hmm. just begins from that. And it's like, it's not only the biggest icebreaker, but the conversation is really more like with a friend instead of just a complete stranger. It just flows naturally. So I, the Marine Corps actually saved my life. I'm, I'll say that. It's it's always uh, given me the foundation to, you know, to, to, to keep repeating to myself and even my children, don't quit. It's just mm -hmm. around the corner. Don't quit. And I and, and my son is 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 all on board with that. My daughter's been on board with that. Um, you know, you're going to get knocked down. Everybody gets knocked down. There's disappointments in life. Uh, you know, you don't you don't get through life un, unscathed, unharmed. And um, but I always kept that in the back of my mind. And, and that and I credit that to the Marine Corps, that that foundation. Don't quit. Just keep moving. Yeah, that I had a very, very similar background uh, and and people heard me tell it. Uh, I grew up skating punk rock and there's a running joke. People say on this podcast that when they listen, that there's like a drinking game that that people take a shot or a drink every time I say punk or skateboarding. But I say that to say ran from the police, you know, had a different perspective. But I always wanted at a young age, go into the military, into the army and started reading books back then that the only, the only way I knew anything about the military was through books about Vietnam units. And then anybody who 
would had already been in and would talk to me. You know, so a lot of uh, older guys, you know, my dad, my uncle, my grand, my grandfather, you know, they would tell me their aspects or their side of it. But for me, it was like I wanted infantry. I knew I wanted at least four years and it set me up. So I tell a lot of young people now or anybody who who is looking that way, like that is that changes their trajectory. For me, just like you said, for you, and when we get into like all the things that you've done and that probably all builds off of, just like you said, the Marine Corps, like my thing was to build off the army. It got me money in my pocket, paid for my college degree. And then when I went into police work, one, I I didn't have that fear or that ability uh, or that um, lack of confidence that I wasn't able to do the job. I was more worried about just filling out paperwork properly, but I was good to go with like weapons training, hands on. I didn't mind that. So same thing with you, I'm sure. It's like coming out of Marine Corps. Then did you go directly into the NYPD or what, what was your story there? Well, I kind of took the long route. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I actually worked uh, for the Plano Police Department in Plano, Texas. Uh, that oh. was my first stop in, in terms okay. of law enforcement. So that was mm-hmm. that was pretty soon after I got out of the Marine Corps. And uh, back then, the, you know, the Plano Police Department, this is back in 1985, so I'm, I'm dating myself. Uh, There's about 160 guys getting girls. Uh, and most of Plano, half, or at least half of the town, was kind of undeveloped. They were still, you know, they, like west of this road called Preston Road, there was nothing but like farms and, and pastures and maybe a golf course. But there wasn't really anything. And that was, of course, my first sector on the midnight. You know, so I'm like... I don't know if I could do this for 20 years. And because of the size of the department, I say this a lot to people that are are looking to, to, you know, make moves and build their career in the police department. If you're going to pick a police department, pick one that has a decent size of police officers. And I Mm -hmm. say that because to to get into a specialty unit like narcotics or, or an investigative track, you know, somebody has to either get promoted or retired or they Mm -hmm. have to move on into a different, lateral move. So the movement in a small department versus a bigger police department is much easier. So I I stayed with them. I lasted two years. And uh, to make a long story short, I called my recruiter up in, um, excuse me, my background investigator up in in New York. And I said, what am I still active on this list? Like if I wanted to, you know, come back to New York, what what would I have to do? And he goes, he goes, I could have you in the next class, meaning uh, January. Oh, and this okay. is like October of mm-hmm. uh, 84, uh, excuse me, uh, of uh, 86, rather. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, OK, so I come up, they scheduled the medical, they scheduled the psychological, the EKG, all these other things that I had to do. And the next thing you know, I'm raising my hand and I'm back in New York in January of 87 in in another police academy, second police academy. <laughs> yeah. And so for some people feel free to Google what NYPD was like and the crime rate and what was going on in 86 to 87 and then all the way up into the early nineties. But for you, when you went through that Academy and that's one of the largest, obviously, if not the largest police department in the country, right? Yes, sir. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me down here in the South, like when I'm reading about departments and innovation I always go to books about NYPD and even going back historically to there's a book about the black hand back at the turn of the century when I think it was Joseph Petrosino and the Italian squad went completely undercover, plain clothes, 
he's getting locked up in jail to get into. I mean, like, it's a great book. And when I read it, I was just blown away with how a, a department like that in a city that size stays oftentimes ahead of things in criminal organizations and how to do that. And it's, I think, I mean, I could be wrong. Worldwide, it's like NYPD's Intel division or section is is by far the best, the greatest. And I'm kind of flash fast forwarding a little bit, but that was what you eventually got into with New York, right? NYPD. Yeah, correct. After after uh, after 9-11 happened, uh, they were looking for people to go into Intel. And, and the backstory to that for me was mm-hmm. I didn't want to go. I was <laughs> I was working in narcotics and had a great team of guys and girls and I had steady days off Sunday, Monday. I made my own hours. Uh, the commander was very happy with me. I was very happy with him. And then nine 11 happened and they were looking for people and, and, and to make a long story very short, my son had gotten very sick and uh, I was home for eight weeks, courtesy of the NYPD full pay mm. while he was convalescing. So when nine 11 had happened and they were looking for people from Intel the same captain he had since transferred um, called me on my cell phone and said, Chris, I need a favor. He says, I need you to take the spot in Intel. And I said, for you boss, anything, mm-hmm. um, because this is the same gentleman that got me home with my son while he was sick for, you know, for eight weeks, full pay. So that's kind of like how I got an Intel, but getting back to your, your statement about in terms of intelligence and, and, and information, I, I have this con- this conversation with people, whether it's you know in private or it's in a, in a teaching environment. Uh, I, I tell people that the NYPD Intelligence Division is by far and away uh, the biggest Google repository of all things human intelligence and counterterrorism. Period. And I'm happy to debate that with anybody. If anybody mm-hmm. wants to challenge me on that, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation because um, the things that the NYPD does in the Intelligence Division. Um, is 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 pretty cutting edge, and some of it is is really like moment by moment in terms of what is the legality in terms of the Patriot Act. So, just as an mm-hmm. example, some of the things that I would get myself involved with, uh, and re- and using the the Patriot Act as a baseline, I had a lawyer on call that worked specifically for the Intelligence Division. So, if I was in one of those areas that I was uncertain on, I would explain to him the situation, and I would say. Don't tell me what I need to do. Let me tell you what I would like to do and just mm-hmm. tell me if I'm if I'm on a good foundation for that. And more times than not, he would say, you're good to go. And that's how it would roll. Mm-hmm. Another interesting fact about the intelligence division, and I'll just share this with your audience, and I know you know this, but in every major city around the world, it doesn't matter if it's in Europe or if it's in Asia, Australia, the Dominican Republic, uh, Paris, London, uh, uh, anywhere in Spain, there is an NYPD intelligence officer uh, stationed there with the host nation's intelligence group. So there's generally a sergeant and generally at least one detective, depending on the threat. So like London is obviously a big target for, you know, for terrorism. Paris certainly is. Um, and so, and some other countries, but those people live there full time and they are married up to the, the host nation's intelligence people. And basically the reason for that is, there was some obviously mis- mis- missteps with 9-11 and also with the 93 yeah. bombing of the World Trade Center. And mm-hmm. so the NYPD said no more. So they've cut out the middleman, so to speak, what everybody knows. is, And, and basically, they, the intelligence is now in real time on the ground 
from somebody reporting as opposed to a cable or a memorandum coming three days after the fact. And that's kind of one of those things that in, in my background, I was in a department that was that basically gave me a lot of freedom. So at one point I was kind of what would be your counterpart, like a sergeant on an intel unit. But overall, I ran a gang intel monthly meeting. And that was my thing it was like, we we have to get information directly from the our counterparts in all these different departments and agencies. And it's like, you, you can't just pick up a phone and call someone's front desk when, you know, the flag's gone up. It's like, let's build a rapport now. Everybody get in a room every month and talk and we'll present information and that sort of thing. But we have to have that rapport to where at two in the morning, I can call another agency and say, which I've done before, like, hey, we've got this person linked into an ongoing shooting spree between two different blood sets or two different gangs. Can you do me a favor? He's got an existing warrant. He's probably putting his head down at this location. Can you go and make an arrest or get a team to go make an arrest to prevent our shootings from occurring? You know, it's this, it's this idea of like establish that network ahead of time, like, like build the ark before the flood. You know, you don't want to be chest deep in water with a hammer and nail kind of thing. So it's one of those ideas that, again, I don't know anyone else that was doing that the way New York was with sending sworn law enforcement officers out to other countries. I just stuff like that, that, that the whole idea of building things and being innovative to where you're getting that intel, you know, uninterrupted and not sanitized straight to the source to where then a, a department or an agency can say, OK, now armed with this, what are we going to do for our jurisdiction or how is this going to affect us? So I've always been impressed with NYPD side and especially reading stuff about Intel. And then uh, I don't want to steal your thunder, but like your background in street crimes, in drug units, like your background, I would assume helped tremendously on the Intel side, even though you didn't know that, like, you know what I mean? Like in your brain, because I'm the same way. It's like, I, I like doing this, but how does that going to apply to Intel? So Walk, walk me through what it was like once you kind of got into that Intel realm. Well, <laughs> it was, I wouldn't say it was culture shock, but it was one of those things where I was very comfortable operating out in the street. So, you know, 13 years combined time of plain clothes. So if you do the math, I only did seven in uniform. Yeah. And uh, so I was comfortable in the street and I worked with some really good people and there's a whole trust issue and things like that. And fast forward now going into the Intel, it's like, you know, business casual, well, I mean, I showed up, and, you know, whatever I wanted to wear pretty much, you know what I mean? Yeah. T-shirts yeah. and whatever and blue jeans yeah. and sneakers and stuff like that. And yeah. uh, but now I get in there and, and 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 I'm the sergeant. So I'm supposed to lead. You know what I mean? There's like all this anxiety and pressure I'm putting upon myself. But the reality was the, pe the people, people are people and mm -hmm. they welcomed me in there and they, you know, they showed me how they they operate. I wasn't, I was never a micromanager. I was always one of these people that was persuasive, not authoritarian. Mm -hmm. and, and we got along great. And I ended up working with some of the most gifted investigators. When I say investigators, m most people today, uh, have it, it's, it's a lost art in terms of communication and it, when you have to interview and interrogate people. And it really is a perishable skill set that has to be worked on. And there's got to be a lot of failure before there's any success. And, you know, so that whole 
Rubicon was kind of like was fixed for me when I got there because these were all seasoned people. So I was mm -hmm. actually learning from them. They were learning from me. And we did some really great cases as a result of that. But, you know, getting in there and, and having to transition from being a street person, working with, you know, you're dealing with people that are either buying drugs or selling drugs, banging doors, doing search warrants and things like that. That I loved, that adrenaline rush, that satisfaction of, you know, we're not we're not going to solve the problem, but we're, you know, we're doing our part in, ter in terms of what we're, we're supposed to be doing. And then going, you know, going into Intel, I'm like, I don't know if I can replicate that kind of success because yeah. I, and that was my fear and my yeah. anxiety. So that, that's <clears throat> mm -hmm. that was the problem when I went in there initially. Yeah. And a lot of like when you mentioned that about being a leader, I tell people <clears throat> a lot of times, like stay out of your team's way, like you're you're monitoring and you know what they're doing. But most detectives became detectives because they were squared away, <laughs> you know, and especially with the higher level units you get to, like just let them do what they do. And then if you've got that background, then that's great. You can kind of guide. But then to understand some people, you know, especially on the Intel side are really good on computers or signals, you know, or reading and understanding things. But then you put them in front of a human source or you, you ask them, hey, OK, you've got these whatever cameras from this location. But what does that mean? Does that mean the guys that are hanging out in this corner are actually committing crimes or plotting? You don't know because you don't have the sources down there. So I'm assuming that your unit eventually got into or was already working human sources uh, or CIs. Some people call them confidential informants, confidential, confidential human sources. That was always my thing. Like I really loved that aspect. I can do the computer side stuff I need to, but that aspect of what you were doing at the time, which was completely uh, terrorist um, directed, correct? Like for the most part. It, yeah. And it, well, mm -hmm. it, it was actually a combination of both. It was, it started as a, as criminal and then mm -hmm. a transition after nine 11 back into, you know, counterterrorism. So mm -hmm. we call it HSO or human source operations. Like you were saying, you know, you mm -hmm. have to have a source. This, I, I, you know, there's no way that you can operate without sources. So, I, you know, again, my operating budget was 50,000 a quarter. So it's 200,000 a year. And so you'd say to yourself, well, you know, I had eight detectives. That's a lot of money for eight detectives. But, you know, when you start, mm -hmm. you know, working these sources and you start working these cases and each detective or, you know, generally they're paired up with another one. So there might be four teams that are going out and you're and you're running out on these cases along with them that money actually goes faster than you would think. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, and I know you know this, and I, I but I'm going to share this with your audience and, mm -hmm. and for people that, that are listening, the NYPD does not pay for nothing. In other words, <laughs> if you have a source, he's mm -hmm. got to bring you something bona fide. It's got to either be human intelligence. It's got to be a picture. It's got to be a tangible object. <clears throat> it's got to be tomorrow at this date and time. It's got to be something that actually happens. Now, there's been times, have there been times rather that I've done a search warrant and it turned out to be a dry hole? Yes, because they might've moved the product and things mm -hmm. like that. But I don't just turn around and give somebody money and hope that things are going to work out. Things have sure. to work out and then you yeah. get paid. So everybody <laughs> yeah. kind of like has skin in the game. Mm -hmm. There's other organizations and I'm not going to mention their name, um, mm -hmm. but I'm sure you're well aware of, that is a, a completely foreign concept to them. We are mm -hmm. just going to spend our money 
and buy our way out of this problem. And that doesn't solve anything. It doesn't yeah. solve anything here stateside in investigations. Yeah. And it certainly yeah. doesn't solve anything internationally over in Iraq and some of these other places. Yeah. But, you know, it's almost like, you know, where others have failed, I'm being, I'm speaking facetiously, mm-hmm. I will succeed. So I'm going to continue that practice of giving money. Whereas mm-hmm. in the NYPD, we're not giving you money because first yeah. of all, I have to justify the, the money that's mm-hmm. being spent. So yeah, I'm issuing the money, but I have to answer to my lieutenant who has to answer to the captain who has to answer to the inspector who's the zone commander. So there's got to be accountability. Well, you spent $5,000. What did you get? Did you get a search warrant? Is there mm-hmm. any bad guys in handcuffs? You know, did you, is the case still ongoing? Like, you know, are, are we just going to keep spending money because we, 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 ha- we have it, you know, so right. there's, there's a lot of oversight and things like that, you know, in terms of how the NYPD operates. And I made that a long story, but I want to hammer home that point to your listeners. Mm-hmm. If you have a CI, you need to vet him. You need to test him continually and you don't pay him for bad information. Now, if he's a CI and you've had him for an extended period of time, you know, six months and, you know, 90, he's got a 90% hit rate, you know, hit ratio, good information, good intelligence, then that's fine. But like on the first rodeo, you're not giving him any money. If he comes back empty handed a second time, then you might be like, I don't think this is going to work out for you and I. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great point that a lot of people, uh, early on, they're so um, antsy to get a, an informant, you know, or a source. And so sometimes they'll they'll leak and they don't realize it, but they may ask a question and a really savvy gang member or, you know, career criminal, whatever, can read it. And if they say something like, you know, oh, well, who who's a, whatever planning to rob something? They're like in their mind, oh, you you're looking for a robbery crew. And then they can make up something. And then they test the cop and then the cop is like getting, you know, excited in their body language. And so a lot of times, like I, I, I'll explain or, or um, in classes, talk to people about you've got to also understand sometimes in the criminal world and especially the gang world, a really good informant is is also a really good survivor. Like they read body language instinctively. They know like okay, I know what you're looking for kind of thing. So, and I do teach like ways to test and you know that like your background is like, all right, I'm, I'm going to ask them a few questions and then to find out if they're going to lie to me on known facts that I know they should know. And if they tell me, you know, you start to put in those fail safes, but it is true. Like you're talking about, if you can develop a really good source and you're paying them for their time and effort and they become really good at it or they're just naturally good at it, it, it just, it accelerates everything, the investigation, the direct action that, you know, your proactive assets can get on board and do, whether it's in the terrorism side or even in the criminal side, or when they both merge, sadly, which is what sometimes happens in cities uh, when people go to prison, get indoctrinated, you know, with a certain type of ideology and then come back and they got that gangster mindset, but now they, they're radicalized and moving forward, sadly, without getting off on a tangent, I do think we're going to see a lot more of that as these guys get into their 30s and 40s and start to, their mindset start to change, but they still got that gangster heart, you know, or that gangster mentality. Right. Um, But when we're talking about informants and sources like that, and you're talking about the rapport building and testing, and then you get that information, how does that like marry up or merge with the signals or the, the social uh, media aspect or the, or the side of 
surveillance cameras? Like, how do you merge all of that to be successful? Well, you know, I'm not a technical guy, so that's my downfall. It's, mm -hmm. it's probably because of my age. You know, the younger people, they grew up with this. So some of the younger detectives, you know, they could whip around on a computer and things like that. In terms of surveillance, I mean, most of the time, uh, I'm just speaking for the NYPD. Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't use technical surveillance and signals intelligence. Obviously, you know, we there is wiretapping and things that go on. It's not actually called wiretapping, but, you know, it's right. electronic surveillance and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but we re live and breathe really on human source information. That's really what, what gets it. Because at the end of the day, when I want to go bang a door for a search warrant, I, I have to be able to present this to a judge. And sometimes the judge, when, when you're when you're doing this, obviously it's in camera, it's not in an open courtroom. They want you to produce the source, you know. So now you're standing mm -hmm. there and, the you know, the judges, believe it or not, are actually pretty smart people and they know the questions oh, yeah. to ask. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and you don't want to be caught with a source that he told you one thing before you got to the courthouse and now he's changed his story. And so there's a lot of things that, you know, are riding on this. So that's why I say getting back to this relationship, and you had touched on it too about the rapport. You got to make sure you have that with this person, and you're vetting this. The, the The way the intelligence division works is mainly with surveillance teams, meaning either you know NYPD people they have an actual surveillance team. If it's a smaller case, you might be doing your own surveillance. You know, depending on the location. Again, you know this. Mm -hmm. It's a building. Well, the building is, you know, I can get a floor plan from the city manager's office <laughs> right. and, the, and the clerk's office, rather. But that doesn't tell me about what's going inside in the building. Mm -hmm. If anything's been changed, what's what's the what what are the people and the makeup of the people and things like that? So that's why I say, go, and I've kind of made this a, a, a long story. You need a human source to get that kind of information because there's no other way that you can get in there. And to and if if you're trying to build the case then that could take, you know, that, as you know, that could take weeks, months, if not longer, to get this guy who's your source to even be trusted enough by the, by the operation that you're trying to infiltrate. So it's, it's a painstaking process. Sometimes they go very quick, as you know, very mm -hmm. simple, and it becomes a building block for bigger and better cases. And sometimes it's a long-term investigation and this, and this confidential informant that's working for you, it takes time to get him to, to get buy-in from this organization. Mm -hmm. So when you, you did your time in the NYPD, you, you cut your teeth on the Intel side, and then you approach retirement and you think, I'm going to retire and I'm going to be done or no? Oh, well, <laughs> I was kidding myself. I thought I was just going to retire. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, and again, you become an adrenaline junkie. That's really what it what it what it becomes. And mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and you become like a family if you work with these people. And I'm sure you've had this experience. You know, you come you're spending more time with these folks than you are your own family. Let, let's be real about it. And so, uh, make sure you, if you have a wife, make sure she's independent because if she's a somebody that's not or a, or a husband for that matter, I'm, I, I shouldn't just mm -hmm. say a wife. I'm speaking for myself. I have mm -hmm. a great wife, but. <laughs> If, if they're not independent, you know, you're going to be spending a lot of hours of work. So my typical day was it was a minimum of 12 hours a day. Uh, it wasn't mandatory, but it was expected because we didn't really have three shifts. We had two shifts in the in the Intel in the Intel room. So I, I 
I was doing that for five years and I had a, a at the time they called it a Nextel Direct Connect. People would be like, what? What is that? <laughs> yeah, so it was basically yeah. a fancy phone that's a walkie-talkie that, you know, the director of Intel or one of his, you know, managers is calling me and saying, hey, there's an explosion in Brooklyn and mm. we want you to respond there. Now, I'm, I don't live in Brooklyn. I lived in Long Island at the time. So depending on the time of day, the day of the week, my, my, you know, as, and I had a company car, my ability to get there, you know, is, is all subject to all those other factors that are involved. So I'm saying all that to say this. I love that. I love, you know, being the, the point guy, the phone would ring, you know, what's going on. I need a status report. I need an, an update. But after five years of doing that, you know, when I, when I, when I left, I had over 1500 hours in comp time. That doesn't count the overtime. You know, so the uh, overtime was probably yeah. at least that and then some. So uh -huh. I knew I was, you know, I was like, my kids were young and I needed to make a move. And I had an opportunity to move to Virginia. And that and I took that. But I was really only kidding myself because I still had that. I would watch news and I would see other events that were happening around, you know, the country. And I was like, oh, you know, so yeah. I, I, I really never really left it behind. And even now, again, as I say. I'm 62 years old. I feel like I'm going backwards in life and <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be a school resource officer watching kids get on and off the bus and saying hi to the moms and dads that are dropping them off in the car line. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when, so when, if I remember right in the book, it's been about maybe two years ago, I think when I picked it up, but if I remember right, you have a section in there about being retired, but getting a phone call, like a cold call out of the blue, from from a company or organization that you in other words like you were not seeking them out they were seeking you out am i right on that is that my memory right well a, a part of it's true i mean i spread a wide net i had i had put out my my resume to p different people because i i came down here with the idea that i was going to do construction in, in virginia and yeah. uh, i was working with somebody and it, it, it just didn't work out we mm -hmm. we could not work we could not get along but basically our work mm -hmm. ethic his work ethic was so antithetical to mine and I just mm -hmm. could not work with this person. So I ended up putting my application out and I'm, I'm literally in my basement with a paintbrush doing the cuts on the ceiling and the phone rings. And I'm like, I got paint on my hand. Do I want to grab my phone? And I end up grabbing my phone mm -hmm. and there's a recruiter on the phone and he starts talking to me about the job. And I said, well, you're going to have to forgive me because I, I filled out a few applications. Tell me about the company and the job and things like that. So Mm -hmm. that, that conversation lasted for about 15 minutes. Later on, there was the, in, the, in the same day, there was another call. It was a more definite and, and detailed conversation about the job. And basically, I would be going to Iraq for a year. And, you know, they, they gave the salary ranges and they said, you know, is this something you'd be interested in? And I said, yeah, I'm definitely interested. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like how that, that happened. I don't want to mislead people and say, Oh, I was so indispensable that that people were finding me, you know, Google searching me. It wasn't anything like that. But in, in, in terms in, in relative terms, that's partially yeah. true. Yeah. Well, but that's what also what I love about the backstory is the mindset that some people have is like, here's the, the problem we have. A set egos aside. How are we going to solve this problem? If it is IEDs going off, it is if it is an actual structure that we know is operating when I say structure, like a uh, terrorist organization you know, made up of human beings, how are we going to disrupt and stop this? And then it's that idea of where's the talent 
can we pay them what they're worth and get them their boots on the ground over there and then get them in play doing what they do best? And can the military side adjust to that and understand here's this, you know, quote unquote civilian with a military background, but who is really good at what he does, is that going to transition and help make a successful team? Yeah, so if you can yeah, kind of walk us through through some of that. Well, I got to tell you, it was it was pretty ugly before it got pretty. Yeah. I'd be honest with you because yeah. you know, I, I, again, everybody's got ego, myself mm-hmm. included, and everybody has pride. So that that's that's a dynamic that you're constantly having to check yourself. You know, check mm-hmm. as they say, try and be humble. You know, and put put that aside. Uh, the army or the military in general. I'm just you know soldiers. So I'll just say yeah. soldiers because that's very generic, but that's very true they have a way that they've been trained to do certain things. And now you're trying to bring in a different perspective. But the problem, the problem for us was uh, a lot of it was self-inflicted. Meaning the, the team that I was part of everybody on the team, with the exception of me and two other people and the, tra- and to include the translator were special forces operators. So these were like seasoned people mm-hmm. that are part of this team, but the, but the people that were supporting are basically conventional army. They're not, a special forces unit. So you're trying to get buy-in from the base commander who's a who's a full-bird colonel. This is probably his first time in Iraq, and he doesn't even have the combat infantry badge, but he needs to be there mm-hmm. in order to, to get on track to get promoted. So and I know you know all this and people that are that are familiar with the military in, in general and things like that understand it, especially if they've been in theater or have been in Iraq or Afghanistan. And so the team is trying to get buy-in. We're trying to get acceptance from the army. And, you know, if you thought it was bad with me, with my own team, because I'm not a special forces guy. Now you're trying to ram a team down of retired guys who mm-hmm. in their mind are like, well, why are you retired? Why aren't you still actively doing this as a cop in New York? Or why aren't you still operating as, as a green beret or as a seal? Like, why are you coming? <laughs> so those challenges were very hard to get over. And we had, like I said, some self-inflicted wounds from the first person that was running the team whose communication skills was was really abysmal. Mm. What was some of that, I would assume, like the ego checking, like you were saying, when when someone, and I do it too, I have to always do it. I, I try to use the term ego-free, but yeah, you just have to check it and go, okay, is my head getting too big? Let me try to shrink it a little bit. But was one of that some of the, the major battles you were having to get over? Or was it, hey, can everybody understand we all have separate roles? And and what I'm bringing right now is the intel side, like the rapport building, the can we gather this information from human beings and get ahead of this cycle of violence? Yeah, and, that, and, and, and therein lies the problem. And again, the team, even like I said, you know, in, within my own team, there were people that questioned my ability. And again, I, I know we had this conversation before we, mm-hmm. we we started this podcast. You're you're walking in the room to do a training on gangs, and there's this other fellow that's there with you, and he's this big muscular guy, and <laughs> you totally dislocate the people's expectations because they're thinking you're going to talk about if I'm if I remember right, nutrition, and this guy's yeah. going to be talking about gangs, and it's <laughs> yeah. the opposite. And yeah. so, but this is this is the challenge I'm having with my own team and with the army, mm-hmm. and so. When, when when we finally got buy-in from this one team, 122 TST, which stands for Tactical Strike Team, um, the relationship wasn't immediate, 
but we kept going out there and there was more there wasn't success immediately mm -hmm. uh, i didn't solve all the problems uh, in iraq uh, you know even 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 the team itself collectively but then it started to change and we started to become more successful and the team that i was part of started to gel so we had mm -hmm. that obstacle to 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 get over to work where everybody knew their left and rights on the phoenix team and then how to incorporate that relationship with a conventional army team. Now, again, the people that drove us around are full-time green suitors, green ar mm -hmm. army, regular mm -hmm. army. Mm -hmm. They pulled them from like admin jobs. So they're not even, oh. so like they're our drivers and they're setting up the security cordon and they're like, uh, you know, yeah. but they were assigned to us. Mm -hmm. The team that was supporting, they had already had, this is like their second tour over there. So this is like, you know, they're, they're working on, they're two years and counting when we started to all work together as a team and everybody knew what they were supposed to do. And this, we're going to shotgun the door off its hinges and then canines going to go in and then we're going to separate the men and then we, from the women. And we're going to separate the children from the adult males. Once that all started to come together, that's where the rubber met the road that. And plus what we did to, to create even a better and stronger relationship instead of having the, the team 122 TST, the, the army team that we're supporting, we were using them as a force multiplier. So I taught them how to do house surges or, you know, TSC, tactical mm. site exploitation. And I mm -hmm. told them the things to look for. So, it, it, and I'll just paraphrase this. I'm in a bathroom at three o'clock in the morning talking to a bomb, a bomb maker, notionally. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the people are searching the house. Now, instead of just the team that I'm working with, the Phoenix team searching the house, now it's not, it's the Phoenix team and the, the Dave Peluso, Sergeant Dave Peluso's team from 122 TST. So I essentially have like eight people at any given time breaking down all the rooms in the house and searching. And then every now and then somebody is knocking on the door. Hey, Chris, you know, like, so I'm, open, I'm opening up the door and, and they're handing, my dog is having a moment. That's a good, good dog. Not done that. Uh, <laughs> but they're handing me a piece of physical evidence that I could say, you told mm -hmm. me you weren't a bomb maker, but here we have yeah. a, a bomb component that's associated with bombs. Mm -hmm. so it, 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 it was a psychological challenge, and we're breaking this person down. But that did not happen immediately. But once it did happen, mm -hmm. we took off. We and took that's off. that's one of those things, too. Like if, if somebody's listening and they're a detective or they're a patrol officer and they've done some interviews or some, some contacts like that, th there was always this right rule coming up through the ranks that – Never interrupt somebody during an interview or never interrupt somebody when they're in the box or whatever you want to call it. And the same thing, like a field contact where I, you know, I pull somebody out in the cut or something and go, okay, we're going to go talk, but you need to interrupt me. If you got something that is time sensitive like that, or something that you can say, you're telling me you're not a bomb maker. Here's direct evidence in your home that you are now let's get back to the point of where you're telling me that you're not a bomb maker. We need to, we need to talk about some other things. I would assume is kind of how right. the conversation goes, but that idea, like you were saying of teaching the team members, and I'm quite sure they were probably all on board. Once someone took them under their wing and said, Hey, look, like, like we're in the fight. Let's, this is how you're going to search systematically room to room. And then we're all going to be part of this. So like, I'm sure that the soldier that finds that piece of evidence and it's knocking on doors, like, like, you know, like, like spiking the football kind of thing. Like, Hey, we're on to something here. We have this direct evidence. This is the person who is building bombs, who's killing 
you know, citizens and Americans, you know. Um, so when you did that and you started kind of replicating that, is that when the success was really starting to just get full bore? Like, Hey, okay, this, this, this Phoenix team is we're on it. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we became like, uh, I wouldn't say indispensable, but we, it was, the, it was to the point that this one particular team, the one, two, two TST, they would not do an operation without us. You yeah. know, like mm -hmm. if they were rolling, we were rolling. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our things were spun up because there had been an event. So we would do what, what they call post blast assessment or a PBA. And we would gather, you know, so we'd roll on that as well. Um, but, you know, getting back to what you said, that we went from like having one or two operations uh, in, a, in a week to like one every day, sometimes two every day. The op mm -hmm. tempo was was exhausting because mm -hmm. it's not just the time out on the field and the time on target. Now it's processing the evidence, writing all the reports. And what, what was the beauty of this whole program was we weren't there to take credit for this. In other words, this isn't the Phoenix team's success story. This mm -hmm. is one, two, two TST Sergeant Dave Peluso's success story. So now I, I, know, I know you can relate to this. Mm -hmm. If you can imagine coming back and you've, you've grabbed a high value target. So the team collectively rolled up 91 high value targets. So these are tier one and tier two people, which for people not in the military, these were, would be targets that were, be, would be generally speaking assigned to a special forces operator, whether it was a seal or it was a green beret, uh, outfit. So now we're picking off these targets. The, the back to Sergeant Dave's team, they're now in the, the dining facility. You know, so this this is spreading like wildfire. Like you know, like oh my god, you know, did you hear about Sergeant Dave's team? They, they rolled up so and so, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're when you when I was 48 years of age when this was all going on, when you watch that and you see that kind of affirmation for them, you know, from their peers. That that you can't you can't pay me enough money for that. That's just yeah. like awesome beyond awesome in terms of how how gratifying and satisfying that really was to see how they felt about themselves in, in this fight. Because make no mistake about it, um, these people were killers. The, these people were targeting primarily soldiers. There was a sliding fee scale for the insurgency, Al Qaeda, and franchise. That the more people they killed, and they videotaped everything. Uh, the more money they got paid. So that was their incentive. The, mm -hmm. the, the Army's incentive and our incentive was we're going to crush you and, mm -hmm. we, and, we, and we crush them. I, I think that history will show too, just like the way World War II tapped into resources from law enforcement with like W.E. Fairbairn training commandos for the OSS or SOE. The same thing like history is going to show. Once again, America goes, okay, what are our assets? Let's get them all together, get them in a room, develop something that will work and also get the hell out of the way when they start going to work, like let them do that and empower them to do that. And just like in the police world, oftentimes cities, and I know the one that I, I was in for a long time, you have multiples like street crimes units or proactive units and you start hearing the buzz of, well, the gang units going after these guys. And then you hear about this like, you know, what would kind of be the um, farm league team, you know, like a district team of a couple of officers pulled and a hard, you know, hard charging sergeant. And they're like, hey, they just picked off that homicide suspect. They got a lead from, you know, a traffic stop they did. And a person put him on the house where he's hiding out. And then you get to walk into a room 
and see these, you know, first, second year officers getting excited. Like, Hey, we, we got in a fight. Like we caught this murder suspect and it was based on a traffic stop where the sergeant or senior officers like, look, yeah, you got weed, you got whatever. We need to know where the shooting suspect is. And it flips that info the same way. I'm quite sure going, you know, house to house and starting to, to pick off one person leads to another person leads to another person. And then just that idea of, Hey, this team, this Sergeant Dave's team, like they're, they're doing it. And then when they get that, it's, it's that you build on that, like that addiction or, or that adrenaline that you're going, let's go get the next one. Like once that, that side, you know, your team obviously is disrupting the IED makers and figuring out what their motives are. And then now we're, we're taking out the bomb makers. We're also taking out probably I would assume middle management of that organization and maybe not your team directly, but if everybody's making that concerted effort, that organization can't, can't stand it. It puts them basically into chaos or disruption. And that's, that's what I always love hearing about. And also for people stateside and in law enforcement to understand the skills we build here are the same, can be replicated. It's organization versus organization. And whether you're going after La Cosa Nostra, you're going after, you know, uh, hammer skins or skin, you know, Nazi skinhead organizations or gang member organizations, any existing organization that's out there committing acts of terrorism or, or crime, a lot of the same principles can be applied. It's flipping people into sources, mapping out the structure if you can and the hierarchy and then being very strategic about what you do. And then for the leaders listening, stay out of the way of the really motivated ones and give them what they need. If they need money for informants, get them money. If it's, Hey, we need better vehicles or Hey, our team is squared away. We don't need anything. Don't start bringing new people in and don't become the good idea fairy and come walking <laughs> in and telling us how to really be successful when we're crushing it. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I, I, listen, <laughs> the good idea fairy has ruined many good investigations. I'll tell you right now. And then, you know, I, you know, then there's the Johnny come lately. It's like, uh, they weren't interested in the, in the party. And now all of a sudden they yeah. want to be in the party. You know what I mean? So, and I know, you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, yeah. but, uh, it, 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 it is basically a tried and true, uh, a tactic. It's, it's not that I invented flipping mm -hmm. people just like you didn't invent flipping people, exactly. but it comes yeah. down to the guy in the arena and the communication skills. And can you do this? And the, mm -hmm. and the team working collectively with like, now this guy's had some formal resistance training. He's not going to budge. I go until I do the psychological genie uh, genie trick on him. And I go, here's the bomb. And it was in your bedroom in the nightstand. So, I mean, like, so we really need to move past this. We got, we, we have to acknowledge this is real. And you're in a bathroom yeah. with me at three o'clock in the morning. So let yeah. me help you. How can I help yes. you? So, yeah. Based on that, and, uh, and this is mm -hmm. a true story. We were, again, getting back to the relationship. Everybody's working in synchronicity. I've gone to as many as four different targets in one night. Mm. Unheard of. Map mm -hmm. tracked. Where do we need to go? And found joy at each one. Mm -hmm. So, again, anyone that knows the military, uh, and, and we both know the military coming from that background, the Army, especially in a combat zone, is very risk adverse. The military. Mm -hmm. They don't if they don't have a targeting package or if we can't get positive ID on this person, we're leaving with our tail mm -hmm. between our legs and our pride and ego 
down, down, you know, in, in, in as far down as it can go. So that's very crushing psychologically for the soldier. When you have success and you get to keep building upon that success and the excitement and everything like that, everybody is switched on and everybody wants to be part of that. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. now, <laughs> yeah, we're taking down some of these targets. I don't want to get too off track, but imagine mm-hmm. you had a target and it's mm-hmm. in your zone, right? And my targeting officer, which was a fellow, Matt Pacino, who I speak about in the book, is a memory of uh, an amazing targeting special forces guy on loan to us. Imagine if I I have a conversation with you. You're notionally the intelligence officer for, for or targeting officer rather for your organization, and I say, "Hey, I think I know where this guy is that you're looking for," and you brush me off because, after all, what do you know? I've been mm-hmm. working this you know target for 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 months now, and it, it can't you can't possibly be right about that. So, okay, I had that conversation with you. You're not interested. I go out and now I find this guy. Okay? Yeah. And yeah. now mm-hmm. the Black Hawk helicopter is coming in for a landing at Fod Falcon in, mm-hmm. in, in, in uh, just south of Baghdad in Iraq. And where are they going? They're going to the detention facility to grab the target that you didn't want, but now you want him. And I <laughs> yeah. and the team, the Phoenix team and yeah. Sergeant Dave's team went out and got him, even though you said you didn't want him. Now all suddenly you want him. You mm-hmm. want to call him now. So that that was a lot of that going on, not by design, and certainly not to be like somebody that would be would like try and undermine somebody or make somebody look bad. But right, you have to understand this from a military concept. I'm a colonel or a lieutenant colonel, certainly, and I'm in charge of, of a platoon of special forces operators. And this is like, as you say, the farm team yeah. going out there. And they're yeah. grabbing my target. And the lieutenant colonel is like, steam coming out of his ears. <laughs> How in the world is this possible? Yeah. How is this happening? And why is this happening? If you guys had identified this guy six months ago, why mm-hmm. did you not take this target off the plate? But yes, it wasn't by design, but that certainly happened quite often, more often than not. Yeah. And and what, it reminds me of this. There's an officer I had. Well, I didn't have him, but he worked in a district and he had been in some of my classes. And so he was just this go-getter and he would always tell me about, I'm going to be bold out in the streets. Like I'm going to make bold moves. I'm going to do things. I'm going to let everybody know this is my beat. Great patrol officer. He, he builds rapport with this local source who, who kind of gives him the ins and outs of where people are located. And in this area, I mean, he had like a two block radius. It was almost, but a lot of people have warrants. It was like the most violent intersection we had at the time. So I was on a gang unit. We get information about the shooting suspect. So everybody's you know, trying to find this person and nobody really has any leads. This patrol officer calls me and he's like, hey, I have a lead on this shooting suspect in a house. But I, I, I don't what am I supposed to do kind of thing? You know, I said, dude, we'll come to you. We'll set up the perimeter. This is your show. We're not stealing, you know, your arrest. We're not doing any of that. Once you make the physical arrest. We'll help you, you know, get linked up with the aggravated assault uh, unit because they're going to want to interview their suspect. This is all you, brother. Like, we got you covered. And so it was nice being on a team where people were like, yeah, like everybody supported him. They knew he was a really good officer. So it was like going in, setting up the perimeter, making the arrest. Sadly, that guy kind of moved on and is now like flying helicopters. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I always had this vision of him you know, coming up through the ranks and getting to do these really cool assignments and kind of passing that 
that personality down, like, man, do, do the same for other people that everybody's kind of doing for you. So it's that same idea, like had, had people blown him off and been like, well, we, now we don't get credit. You know, he wouldn't have been able to make the arrest on his own. That would have been completely unsafe. Uh, or we go in, swoop in and, and steal the arrest. It's just, right. it's completely wrong. I'm quite sure though, you know, there are a few people that at that point were like, Oh, <laughs> you know, like, like you got, you got the package, you got the person and how are they doing that? What that's what should be up the chain should be. Can we replicate that? Or can we get out of their way as well? Or can, if we've got a lead and they're really good at what they're doing, can we funnel a lead over to them and, and let them run with, it? especially if you're hitting four places or four locations in one cycle like that, 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 that tempo is like, people are self-motivated at that point. You know, you don't have to put the boot in them and go, Hey, I need y'all to go. It's like, uh, uh-uh. it's almost, you know, trying to hang on to the team. Like, can I keep up with them? You know? So out of all, all of that, that was going on and you, you end up doing some incredible work like that and, and replicating it. I'm quite sure at least with like the soldiers you had trained and that sort of thing what would be one thing or like one takeaway or sustain that maybe you had after you left that, that area, that theater, what was one thing that kind of you could take away from that and say, this was, or, or how things should be replicated in your absence. In other words, if that makes sense. Well, you know, Again, I don't want this story to be about me and and, and mm-hmm. self-aggrandizing. But I, when the book came out, uh, I can't. I don't want to say her name because she's still active duty army. She's mm-hmm. an officer. She works in the uh, in the S uh, S two, um, but she's also a trainer, and so she's at a higher level. Um, and when the book came out, she texted me, and I screenshotted it. I saved it because I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm never going to get rid of this message. She goes. Thank you for writing the book. She goes, I hold this book up in class because she worked with us and, and, and worked with more, moreover, really worked with Matt, my friend, Matt Pacino, mm-hmm. in terms of developing these targeting packages. So she said in the, in the screenshot, the book is great. I hold this book up in class and talk about the Phoenix team and the successes and how it was done. And she goes, and now it has become part of their TTPs, their techniques, trainings, and procedures. Mm-hmm. So that's like, you know, they didn't say Chris Strum developed this program, right? But right. they they basically captured how it was done, and this was the team that did it. And for her to hold the book up in a classroom, again, that, that that's that's to me. I, I'll take I'll take that. I'll take that any day of the week. Yeah, and that and that's a way. That's a great way to kind of conclude it. Is just that, like the team effort, the idea that that book has captured how to do this, how to be successful. So hopefully people are reading it, understanding it. Obviously they are now since it's in their programming. Um, but I do want to kind of shift gears just a little bit. Uh, I know a lot of people out there will have questions that they'll send me through Instagram or through email. But for people out there who've listened to this, who are going to pick up the book and read it, what's the best way or easiest way they can kind of follow you? Because I know you do a lot of podcasts. You do a lot of, of guest spots on television. What's the easiest way they can follow you or contact you? Yeah, I'm, I'm like an open book, as they say. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm on Instagram under uh, Brooklyn the Baghdad. Uh, I'm on Facebook under uh, Brooklyn the Baghdad. And my name, Christopher Strom, I'm not trying to hide anything. 
mm-hmm. uh, from anybody. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. Uh, if, if somebody wants me to sign the book, I've had to, and this is the other thing too, which mm-hmm. again, I don't want to get off topic, but in terms of the book and, and, and what the book has done in terms of affirmation and things like that. And again, it, it, people that I don't know will read the book and they'll de- d- direct message me or they will email me or they will uh, send me the book and say, can you sign this? I want to give it to my dad. Or can you sign it? And I want to. So what I do, what I tell people is if you buy it on Amazon and you find me through social media and you message me, if you send me the book, I'll sign it. I send it back for free. I don't make money in terms of like, oh, can I buy the book directly from you? And I'm going to charge you more than what Amazon again. (laughs) And again, not to get off topic, but people think, well, if the book sells for like twenty dollars or twenty five dollars, whatever it is, uh, believe me when I tell you, Chris Trump is not getting. $20 $20 on every book that is sold. Trust me <laughs> right. when I tell you. Um, but in terms of meeting people and, 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 and being able to contact me, I'm readily available. I have no problem signing the book any way you like it. If you want to leave a review, that's great too. I'm, I'm happy mm-hmm. uh, for all the reviews. The book goes up and down. It, it reached number two on the uh, Iraq war genre about a month or so ago, which, mm-hmm. you know, I'm pretty happy with that. I mean, again, first time writer, I'm just a cop from New York, you know, but I had a story to tell, and I guess people relate to it. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Oh, perfect. Yeah, it, it's an amazing read. I've posted it a few times. Uh, I'll push it back out there, you know, every few weeks, every few months. So I appreciate it. I always like to kind of wrap up a little bit. We talk about music and you and I actually, I don't think I've ever talked about music, whether you still listen to it or not, or if there was any kind of influence like we often talk about any music that either one we're listening to right now that's motivating or anything that we would recommend to a friend or a person or whatever, like, Hey, check this out. Is there anything in your, in your world that has anything to do with music? Well, you know, it's funny. One of the, one of the people I met is this guy named John and I'm probably not going to pronounce his last name, Guerrero. And uh, he's a former secret service agent and he has his own podcast called uh, Silver Spear. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh-huh. And he's a super cool guy. But yeah. the band he's in charge of the security for is called Shinedown. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, and I'm not going to get too far down the road with this, but I like their music very, very much. And he's actually invited me to come to one of their concerts. We haven't been able to, to link up with that. But I'm kind of like a 90s rock guy. Like I like Creed. But the funny yeah. thing is, it's funny that you're mentioning the music. So if you could imagine, I'm trying to type an interrogation report mm-hmm. and Matt Pacino is playing heavy metal, like, you know, corn and, you know, <laughs> Limp biscuit to the point where you can't even hear your own thoughts. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm like, all right, I need to go in the office next door because I can't, you know, it's, it's four o'clock in the morning and I'm trying to type and I'm not a good typer anyway. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So that's kind of like the, 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 the span of music that yeah. I, I listen to. So No, that does great. Uh, yeah. John's good people. I did an episode on, on his show, Spirit Talk, and I want him to come on ours. We've coordinated back and forth, and I think I was supposed to. Uh, he came through my city, same thing. He's like, "Hey, hit me up." And if He's I remember right, yeah, He's if I remember guy. right, I got called out to to have to go work a homicide either that night or we had worked into the next day. But eventually, we'll link up. He is a great guy. Yeah, uh, all on board with his stuff. So I appreciate your time, Chris, and uh, everybody. Check out his book, Brooklyn to Baghdad. Hit him up on Instagram. 
Uh, send me any, any um, comments or questions you've got. You can post them here on YouTube. Give us a like and then uh, let me know what you think. Any other any other thoughts there, Chris? You good? No, just thanks. Thanks a million, brother, for having me on the show. It's, it's, it was long overdue. I'm glad we finally yes. did it together, man. Yes, sir. We'll, we'll do another episode. We'll come back on and we'll we'll maybe swap some stories about the uh, days when you were running and gunning in NYPD. Yes, sir. Yes, All sir. right. Appreciate it. Disruptors out.